0: Good morning. Today is Tuesday the 14th of August 2018. This is daily prayer uh, or daily office morning prayer. Uh, we use rite 2 of the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer. I'm Jaka. Your usual uh, caveats and or disclaimers are that I am not any sort of expert. I'm just a regular person in the Episcopal Church. We would call that um, a lay person and we are all ministers of the church, but I'm not a theologian or a priest or any sort of um, subject matter expert. But I do thank you for coming and joining your voice with mine. The daily office is a beautiful liturgy and I'm very thankful that I was introduced to it. Our readings for today are Psalms 97, 99, and 100. Judges 13, 1-15 is our Hebrew Bible reading. Our New Testament reading is Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 42, and our gospel reading is John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. We begin with our opening verse on page 78 of the Book of Common Prayer. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We continue with the confession of sin on page 79 dearly beloved we have come together in the presence of almighty god our heavenly father to set forth his praise to hear his holy word and to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others those things that are necessary for our life and our salvation and so that we may prepare ourselves in heart and mind to worship him let us kneel in silence and with penitent and obedient hearts confess our sins and our mouth shall proclaim your praise. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Come, let us adore him. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Come, let us adore him. Psalm 97. The Lord is king, let the earth rejoice Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his adversaries on every side. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples behold his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, those who make their boast in worthless idols. All gods bow down before him. Zion hears and is glad, and the towns of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O God. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The Lord loves those who hate evil. He guards the lives of his faithful. He rescues them from the hand of the wicked light dawns for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart rejoice in the lord O you righteous and give thanks to his holy name psalm 99 the lord is king let the peoples tremble he sits enthroned upon the cherubim let the earth quake the lord is great in zion he is exalted over all the peoples Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, mighty king, lover of justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Extol the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called on his name. They cried to the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his decrees and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Extol the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 100 Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, having borne no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are barren, having borne no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is to come on his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth. It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like that of an angel of God, most awe inspiring. I did not ask him where he came from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, You shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, I pray. Let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we are to do concerning the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, The man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Manoah got up and followed his wife and and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Then Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the boy's rule of life? What is he to do? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman give heed to all that I said to her. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. She is not to drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. She is to observe everything that I commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Allow us to detain you and prepare a kid for you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our first canticle is number 13 on page 90. Glory to you, Lord God of our fathers. You are worthy of praise. Glory to you. Glory to you for the radiance of your holy name. We will praise you and highly exalt you forever. Chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Canticle 18, on page 93. Splendor and honor and kingly power are yours by right, O Lord our God. For you created everything that is, and by your will they were created and have their being. And yours by right, O Lamb that was slain, for with your blood you have redeemed for God, from every family, language, people, and nation, a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And so to him who sits upon the throne, and to Christ the Lamb, be worship and praise, dominion and splendor, forever and forevermore. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. John also was baptizing at Anun, near Salim because water was abundant there, and people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Now a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. They came to John and said to him, "'Rabbi, the one who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you testified. Here he is baptizing, and all are going to him.' John answered, "'No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice.' For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted his testimony has certified this, that God is true. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We continue by standing and reciting the Apostles' Creed beginning on page 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, We continue with suffrages set B on page 98. I will read the verse and you read the response. Save your people, Lord, and bless your inheritance. Day by day, we bless you. Lord, keep us from all sin today. Lord, show us your love and mercy. In you, Lord, is our hope. O God, the King Eternal, whose light divides the day from the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning, drive far from us all wrong desires. Incline our hearts to keep your law, and guide our feet into the way of peace, that having done your will with cheerfulness during the day, we may, when night comes, rejoice to give you thanks. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, by whose Spirit the whole body of your faithful people is governed and sanctified, Receive our supplications and prayers which we offer before you for all members of your holy church, that in their vocation and ministry they may truly and devoutly serve you. Through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we remember St. Jonathan Daniels who was born in 1939 and died in 1965. Um, I recently got this book, Stars in a Dark World, Stories of the Saints and Holy Days of the Liturgy. It was written by Father John Julian. Um, It's particularly Episcopalian. It aligns with the Episcopal calendar and the saints that we remember on certain days. There's a saint for almost every day on the Episcopal calendar. It's a rather long excerpt today, but I would like to read it. um, And you can just fast forward me if it's too much for you. The son of a local doctor, Jonathan Merck Daniels, was born in Keene, New Hampshire in March of 1939. He was raised in a conservative congregational family and in adolescence became a rebel against societal and parental expectations. As a junior high school classmate later wrote, The John I knew was a bit of a rebel, always in trouble with his family over something. In one particular instance, when trying to sneak into his house after a mischievous midnight escapade with a friend, John fell from the roof of the garage and broke his leg. He said later that the enforced bed rest became a period of intense reflection and he credited that time of self-reflection for many of the subsequent decisions in his life. Hoping to bring some discipline to their wild son, John's parents sent him for a four-year stint to the Virginia Military Institute. Their hopes were realized and that John developed a sense of personal discipline and competence. At VMI, John immersed himself in literature, philosophy, and comparative religion, and proved an articulate and persuasive debater, graduating as valedictorian of his class. In the fall of 1961, John began a year of graduate study in English at Harvard, during which he began to attend the Church of the Advent in Boston. It was there on Easter Sunday in 1962 that John had what he always called a conversion experience. Although he never shared any details of the event, it meant for him the permanent removal of all doubt about his faith. The following year, John returned to Keene, working several jobs to help with family finances. As a teenager, John had been drawn to the liturgy and ceremony of the Roman Catholic Church, but had been put off by the church's moral rigidity. When a new rector came to the parish church of St. James Church in Keene, however, he and John became good friends, a friendship which eventuated in John's joining the Episcopal Church and applying for admission to the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the fall of 1962. In April of 1963, he became a postulant for Holy Orders in the Diocese of New Hampshire. At the time, he wrote to his sister Emily, I am happy, 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 deeply aware of the mercy of God, humbled by recent experiences which have probed and begun to redeem my defenses and pretenses and wounds, thrilled with life as at last I begin to see it. I think I am beginning to discover through various people, books, gropings, towards love in many lives, the church, the presence of the risen Lord, not least in the sacrament, the challenge of pretty exciting Christian thinking and ideas, something me changing about Christ's life and faith. This whole year is the most important of my life to date. As part of his seminary fieldwork, John was assigned to an urban parish in Providence, Rhode Island, where he was exposed to racism and urban blight for the first time in his heretofore privileged life. He said later that that experience raised his consciousness about racism and altered the course of his life. It was not surprising then that John spent four months of his final seminary year on a fieldwork assignment in Selma, Alabama, eventually participating in the famous Freedom March to Montgomery with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. After returning to seminary and completing his final exams in May, John was uncertain about where to devote his energies. He finally decided that for Northern civil rights workers simply to move into the South for a demonstration or two and then go home was not the kind of presence and witness Christianity demanded. So in July of 1963, John resolved to return to Selma, not to participate in any great public demonstrations but merely to live with the poor suffering blacks in Lowndes County, Alabama, and to share their lives. As he wrote to this writer on one occasion, I really wanted to do the incarnational thing. It seemed to me that Jesus did not simply come for a day or two to confront a few evils and leave. He came to the earth to stay for a lifetime. During his time in Alabama, John's experiences were shared with friends through regular newsletters and personal correspondence. It was remarkable that although he experienced brutal rejection and passionate, virulent hatred for many Southern whites, especially some Episcopalians, he always found excuses for their abominable behavior, always explaining the cultural conditioning that had caused their actions and endlessly forgiving them the contempt and scorn he and his black friends experienced at their hands. But some of the hardest times for John were those when he tried to worship at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Selma. During his first trip to Selma, an integrated group, including John, had tried to attend St. Paul's on Sunday. When they were told only clergy would be allowed in, they all refused and held a morning prayer service across the street. Three weeks later, on their second trip south, a small integrated group was allowed into the church for morning prayer. On Palm Sunday, John and his seminarian friend Judy Upham and some young blacks went to the 730 Eucharist. The ushers refused them entrance and called the police, but the rector intervened and they were allowed into the back of the church. When they entered the church for a later service that day with some black children, One parishioner called to them, You goddamn scum. As John and Judy were leaving from a meeting with the rector to discuss Easter services, they met the husband of the organist who asked why they were there. When John explained that they were only trying to follow the gospel, he replied, You go to hell, you goddamn fucking son of a bitch. On Easter day, they brought some black friends to attend the early Eucharist and were seated in the back of the church and an usher warned them not to bring any Negroes to the 11 a.m. service. They went instead to a black Methodist church where John participated in the service. In the summer of 1965, John, Father Richard Morris Rowe, a Roman Catholic priest from Chicago who had become a close friend and some of their black companions were predictably arrested for a minor demonstration at a dry goods store in Fort Deposit and were jailed in the Lowndes County Jail in Hainville, a jail without working toilets or bathing facilities and with poor food. They spent six days in jail, often singing through the nights. And then, unpredictably, on a hot and sultry August 20th, they were suddenly released from the jail in the middle of a hostile white neighborhood, a circumstance that made them properly suspicious. They were all tired and filthy and nervous. While telephone calls were being made to Sales and Joyce Bailey, I'm sorry, while telephone calls were being made to find a ride home on a dusty side street, John, Father Morris Rowe, and two young black women, Ruby Sales and Joyce Bailey, found a small corner store called the Cash Store, which held promise of a cold drink. As they approached the screen door of the store, however, they were confronted by a local deputy sheriff, Tom Coleman who held a shotgun. He shouted that the store was closed and ordered them to get off this property or I'll blow your goddamn heads off, you sons of bitches. John asked if he was threatening them and pushed Ruby Sales out of the way and down. Coleman fired the 12 gauge shotgun and tore a hole in the right side of John's chest. As he died, it was reported by some that his last words were characteristically simple and innocent. We only wanted ice cream. Father Morris Rowe grabbed Joyce Bailey and turned to run when Coleman fired again and struck the priest in the lower back. Both girls got up and ran for cover. Minutes after the shooting, a dozen cars and many whites gathered at the scene. An elderly local physician arrived, declared John dead, and gave Father Morris Rowe some pain medication and covered his wounds with gauze bandage. Within half an hour, the county ambulance arrived with the coroner. Both victims were taken to Montgomery, Father Morris Rowe to Baptist Hospital where he underwent surgery, and John's body was taken to a funeral home, but it was hours before his friends could locate him. Eventually, his remains were brought back for burial in his hometown of Keene, New Hampshire. In the days after John's death, he was honored at memorial services across the country. At Washington's Church of the Atonement, Father Malcolm Boyd spoke, Jonathan Daniels was the most alive young man in the church I have met. He was one person who was not afraid of getting involved. Memorial services were held in churches in St. Louis, Chicago, Atlanta, and Boston. In Chicago, a large rally was held in Grant Park. At a mass meeting held in Lowndes County where the murder had occurred, Stokely Carmichael said, we ain't gonna shed a tear for John because John is going to live in this county. We, aren't, we ain't gonna resurrect John. We're gonna resurrect ourselves. We're gonna tear this county up. We're gonna build it back up until it's a fit place for human beings. The rector of St. Paul's Church in Selma refused requests to hold a memorial service there. The following week, John's bishop, the right Reverend Charles F. Hall and the dean of his seminary, the very Reverend John B. Coburn, came to Selma to preach at a memorial service held at Selma's Brown Chapel AME Church. Father Morris Rowe, the only white witness to the murder, had been transferred to a hospital in Chicago. So local authorities convened a hasty trial before the priest could recover sufficiently to testify as an an eyewitness. The jury, many of whom were longtime friends of the defendant, deliberated for less than two hours and concluded that the murderer, Tom Coleman, had acted in self-defense. He and other local witnesses claimed Jonathan had drawn a knife and Father Morris Rowe had had a gun and was declared not guilty. Even Richmond Flowers, the Attorney General of Alabama, said that the acquittal represented the democratic process going down the drain of irrationality, bigotry, and improper law enforcement. Now those who feel they have a license to kill, destroy, and cripple have been issued that license. In a theological reflection on his earlier time in Selma, John had written, I am first called to holiness. Every impulse, every motive, every will under heaven must attend to that if it is to be healthy and free within the ambiguities and tilted structures of a truly fallen creation. John's martyrdom is of a special sort, of a special sort, shared with others like Oscar Romero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Pattison, James Hannington, and Martin Luther King Jr. in that he was killed not specifically because he was a Christian, the classical definition of a martyr, but because he was involved in doing Christ's work a work the alien world cannot but abhor and despise. John Daniels unquestionably died for Christ and as Christ, and with a clear understanding from the beginning that death might be the result of his commitment to Christian labors and witness. Who dies for justice, wrote John of Salisbury, a 12th century Christian theologian, dies a martyr, a defender of the cause of Christ, In the chapel of Canterbury Cathedral, where John Daniels is memorialized with other modern saints and martyrs, only one of two Americans so honored, is engraved the quotation from T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. A Christian martyrdom is never an accident, for saints are not made by accident. Still less is a Christian martyrdom the effect of a man's will to become a saint, as a man by willing and contriving may become a ruler of men. A martyrdom is always the design of God, for his love of men, to warn them and to lead them, to bring them back to his ways. And the great Martin Luther King Jr. declared, one of the most heroic Christian deeds of which I have heard in my entire ministry and career was performed by Jonathan Daniels. So that's pretty significant. And I think the few things that I want to say about what we've just heard about Jonathan Daniels and the readings that we read today are that in every matter from small to large, God's justice will be done. When we don't see it immediately or ever in our lives here on earth, we can still trust that God sees what has happened that God takes and uses everything and does not throw anything or anyone away, that all is redeemable and that all will in God's time be restored. It is our job when we see wrong to let our righteous anger fuel action for those who cannot act on their own behalf. And sometimes sometimes those are a part of our greater community, the community of humanity that is not even aware. There is evil and there is also ignorance. And those, who are, those of us who are gifted with awareness also shoulder the great responsibility to act. And forgive me if that sounds overblown or self-important. That's not the intent. The intent is to remind myself, and I apologize that, you know, if you're listening in, if if it's not something you want to hear, but to remind myself that in all cases, you know, everything from my son speaking to me the other day about working so hard and not feeling recognized for it, even in those small daily instances, and then to the momentous occasions of violence and death of those who do not deserve it. The huge questions that we have about why do bad things happen? Why does God allow the death of martyrs? To remember that his justice, his purpose, and his will are larger and greater than anything that happens here on this earth. He did create us with free will. And so people like Coleman act within that will in ways that are evil and unjust. But from the large to the small, God sees and we can trust him to make it right and to use it, to use that which was intended for evil, for his good. Coleman and King and all the others did not die in vain. And our small daily efforts are not in vain either. It is my prayer for all of us that before any action, we stop and use our holy discernment to know whether it is of God or of the enemy and that we act accordingly even when it's difficult. That God's will and God's will alone be done in our lives. Now, let's wrap our service up May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We live without fear, for our Creator has made us holy, has always protected us, and loves us as a good mother loves her children. We go now in peace to follow the good road, and may God's blessing be with us always. Amen.